He is risen. That's what we're here to celebrate this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 20. We're going to read the resurrection account. I kind of wrestled with whether to put this in here or not just because it's kind of long, but uh, it's Resurrection Sunday, so we're going to read uh, John's version of the resurrection. But before we do, um, imagine this. So I don't know how many of you attended uh, the Good Friday service that we did with Community Bible Church this last Friday. It was really awesome. Um, Great turnout. Um, But I just heard a lot of feedback from people walking away from that, just how cool it was to, to realize, perhaps some for the first time, like what, what's so good about Good Friday? Why, why do we say that it's good uh, on a day that, that we might um, you know, kind of approach with more of a somber attitude because of the death of Christ? But as we've already talked about today, death doesn't have the final word for the Christian. Christ is the defeater of death, and that's why we can say that a day like Friday was a Good Friday. But, but imagine, if you will, in, in the early church, being there for the actual events of Good Friday. Jesus hung on a Roman cross. He died in one of the most horrific and excruciating ways that a person could die. He was subsequently buried in a tomb that didn't even belong to him. It belonged to another man. His disciples, his friends, his family, as you might imagine, were reeling from what had just happened. And Sunday morning comes along, and Mary Magdalene in the wee hours of the morning, went to the tomb. And John chapter 20, starting in verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and as they were going towards the tomb, both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself." And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood there weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried carried him away, tell tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then he said these things to her. We'll stop right there. Peter and John ran to the tomb. 
because Mary got there first and said, something's happened, there's, there's been a mistake, right? And you have to understand that, that in these days, tombs, like this was a big cave with a giant rock rolled in front of it that like maybe even a few people couldn't have just rolled away. It was kind of a big deal uh, to get there and to see this stone rolled away from the tomb. And then to go in and to see the body missing, this is nothing short of a scandal in the making. And so Mary gets there. She goes and tells Peter and John. Peter and John get there to check it out for themselves. Um, and they go away. And then Mary has this encounter with Jesus. And this isn't going to be our focus today. I want to, want to use this to, to kind of move on through the text. But Mary has this encounter with Jesus. She doesn't realize who he is until he says her name. He calls her by name, and she realizes this is Jesus. Imagine, if you will, in this moment for Mary, standing there realizing that, that it's Jesus who's standing there and just called her by name. Jesus who she thought was dead, who by all accounts should have been in the tomb, lying there dead, lifeless, breathless body, no heartbeat, nothing like that. And here he is standing there and he calls her by name. What, what an amazing scene this is. What an amazing uh, scene that we get to have included in, in Scripture that God gave us. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus, in the coming verses, then appears to his disciples, with the exception of one, with the exception of a guy named Thomas. And I want to look at Thomas today. So if we jump down to verse 24 of John chapter 20, uh, we're going to get introduced to Thomas. You might ask, who, who is Thomas? Who is this guy? You, you might know him by his moniker, Doubting Thomas. Now, as we'll see today, I don't know if this is maybe the best nickname for him. This might not be a fair moniker to call him Doubting Thomas. I think I might call him more skeptical Thomas than Doubting Thomas, but we'll, we'll see uh, in a moment whether you agree with me or not. But we, we got introduced to Thomas back in John chapter 11. I don't know if you remember John 11, but John 11 is when Jesus is out doing his thing, and he gets word that his buddy Lazarus has died. And Jesus, he kind of takes his time, takes a few days to make it uh, to Lazarus' house. And it was in this moment when the disciples are with him that Thomas, he said in John 11:1, he says that Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go along that we may die with him. And this is a short little statement. We're not going to unpack it today, but this just kind of shows you the kind of person that Thomas is. Right? This doesn't seem like Thomas is a guy that doubts Jesus when he says, let's go with him that we may die with him. Right? So Thomas, I, I don't think that he's necessarily a, a disbeliever as much as he might be a skeptic. He was ready to die with Jesus on his journey to pay the respects to Lazarus. And so again, at this point, I think we might call him skeptical Thomas more so than doubting Thomas. But as we get into John 20, verse 24 uh, and on, I want to look at four things, or three things really as they pertain to Thomas, his skepticism, his confession, his belief, and then we'll cap our time off uh, tying this all back to the resurrection. And so John chapter 20, starting in verse 24, it says, now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to him, unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands in his side, I will never believe. And this is where, where we get the term doubting Thomas. And again, I don't, I don't think that, that Thomas is, is necessarily a disbelief. He just wants some proof. He wants to see that this thing is real. Imagine if someone came to you and said one of your loved ones who had passed on that they saw them walking down the street. 
you would be in disbelief. What are you? you would be skeptical of that. I remember years ago when I was much, much, much younger, I had an opportunity to, to help give this woman CPR. I was a passerby, and this woman was on the ground and gave her CPR. This was long before anybody had cell phones and pagers, and so it took forever, it felt like, before the ambulance got there. And me and this other guy were, were doing our, our thing, not even really trained in CPR, just like so we happened to be kind of in the right place at the right time or, or wrong place at the wrong time, depending on your perspective. And the ambulance finally shows up after what seemed like an eternity, and immediately they get out the paddles, and they start shocking. This was an older woman. They start shocking her. Um, she was on a walk with her daughter, and she just happened to pass out on this walk. And between you and I, if, if it wasn't for the daughter there who was freaking out, I think me and this other guy, we just would have thought, she's a goner. There's, there's no sense in, in taking these extreme efforts. But to appease the daughter, we, we did our thing. Um, the ambulance came and got her, took her away, and we went about our day. And it was about a week later, I'm walking on the sidewalk, and I see this woman with her daughter. And the daughter recognizes me, and I got to have this conversation. But my, my first reaction was like, you have got to be kidding me. I, I just assumed that this woman had died. And there she was. And we had this kind of special, it was a neat reunion where the daughter got to introduce me to her. I got to shake her hand, and we hugged, and it was this cool thing. But my first reaction, it was definitely skepticism. Like, that can't be. It can't be her. It's got to be somebody else. Imagine, if you will, Thomas, hearing from the disciples, we've seen Jesus. We've seen Him. And Thomas's reaction is probably how you and I would react. Yeah, whatever. And they persisted, no, like we really saw Him. We really saw Him. No, no you didn't. Yes, we did, Thomas. Seriously, we saw him. No, no, I don't believe you. Thomas, believe us. Listen to us. We saw him. And Thomas is like, you know what? Until I can put my hand, my fingers through the holes in his hands, until I can put my hand through the hole in his side, I won't believe you. This is a normal reaction. This is what any of, any of us would do. Thomas was skeptical. And this, even with all the prophecies surrounding Jesus, that, that He would come, that He would die, that He would raise after three days, even with all the prophecies, you can still understand the skepticism is like, is this really the guy? Is it really Him? And it makes me think of Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. He writes to them in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Even with all of the technological advances that we have today to bring a dead person back to life, it seems like folly. Imagine 2,000 years ago what that would have seemed like that somebody could possibly raise from the dead. As much of a, a folly as that would be now, how much more so would it have been 2,000 years ago without the technological advances that we have today? It's folly to those who are perishing, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, but he says to us who are being saved... It's what? It's power. It's the power of God to those who are being saved. And he goes on to talk about how, how God will destroy the wisdom of men and how the weakness of God is so much stronger than the strength of men or mankind. He says that we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles but for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
So whether you might be here today and you might be like Thomas, maybe more of a skeptic, or if you might be here today just flat out having some doubts about the resurrection from the dead and about specifically if Christ was raised from the dead, the Bible calls all of us to believe this foolish message of the cross. And it's part of the power of God that we would believe such a foolish message, that we would come to believe it's something that seems so implausible in our own natural wisdom. But we're called to believe this message of the cross. And what is the message of the cross? You hear us throughout the word gospel quite a bit here at the door. We talk about the gospel. We preach the gospel. We share the good news of the gospel. Everything we do is centered on the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? What is the message of the cross? They're one of the same, the message of the cross and the gospel. And it simply is this, is that God created all things. He's the creator of mankind, and He created humanity in His own image as a reflection of His goodness. And He did so for our joy and for His glory. And subsequent to that creation, mankind sinned. Mankind rebelled against God's good, God's goodness to us. We rebelled against our Creator. And we began to worship and idolize, the Bible says, created things over and above the Creator. This is the entire problem of humanity, is that, that we take the good things that God has given us for our enjoyment and we make God things out of them, rather than looking to the Creator of those things. And so there was a problem. Our relationship with our Creator was broken because the creation idolized itself over the Creator. But then the good news is that God in His grace sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to live as a man, came to this earth being fully God and fully man at the same time. We can't even wrap our minds around that. But He sent Jesus to live as a man, and He lived a life of perfection he lived a perfect life of obedience to the will of His Father, something that you and I can never do. We're not capable of living a perfect life in submission to God, but Jesus did what you and I could never do. And as a result of Him doing what you and I could never do, He was wrongly convicted and died a criminal's death. But the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 that this was all the will of the Lord to crush his Son to crush Jesus Christ so that the perfect God-man could impute His perfectness to us and at the same time take our sin, take everything that's ugly and rebellious about us, and that we would trade His righteousness for our unrighteousness. And all of that, if true, and I say if not because I'm questioning, I'm saying if true in a logical sense, if that's true, that it begs a response. We can't be indifferent to that truth. We can't say, ah, oh, that's, that's well and good for you, but not for me. We have to respond to it. And we either accept that truth or we reject that truth. And being indifferent to it is a kind of rejection of that truth, just so you know. And so here we have Thomas being told that the resurrected Christ had appeared to all of his buddies except for him. And, and you know, I don't know, Thomas, like that would get under my skin. Like I might ask, well, why not me? Why wasn't I there? Like maybe Thomas has some of that going on, but he's told that the resurrected Christ had appeared to all of his buddies, and of course, he's skeptical. And in 
Thomas' skepticism, I think of just my own skepticism. I'm an analytical person. I typically approach things with kind of an analytical mindset, which, which is a nice way of saying that I overthink everything. And if this were me, I would probably overthink this too. Like I would think of all the ridiculous possibilities and all the ways to refute those ridiculous possibilities because it's just the way that my brain tends to, to function. And as I begin to think about those things, like I can see the folly of the gospel. I can see the foolishness of the message of the gospel. In, in our society today, it was foolish back then, but even more so today, it's foolishness to say that you need a Savior and you can't save yourself. That's a foolish message in our society. If you were to go out into the public square and just start saying that, people, people would crucify you. Don't, don't tell me that I need something that I can't provide for myself, especially us Americans right here out in the West. It's foolishness to say that Christ came to earth. How? How did he come to earth? He came to earth as a baby. He didn't show up on a horse with a sword and a shield ready to kind of take names. He came as a baby. He came in weakness. He came feeble. He came needing to be fed, needing to be changed. And this is the Savior of mankind. You've got to be kidding me. What kind of story is that? So the, so the message that you need a Savior, that you can't save yourself, is kind of foolish. The message of who that Savior is and how that Savior came and the life that He lived, the death that He died, like it, it's just kind of a crazy story. But then you look at who, who are the people that God redeemed? I, I often think about in the Bible. God, God identifies Himself in, in a lot of ways in the Bible, but throughout the Old Testament, you see a lot that God identifies Himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I get Abraham. Abraham was a cool guy. He, he, he wasn't without his flaws, but like, he was a cool guy and did some big things. Isaac, cool guy. Jacob, Jacob was a dirtbag. There, there was no redeemable qualities about Jacob. He was sneaky. He was a conniver. He looked out for himself. And all of the people that God could say that I identify myself with this guy, he says, I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of that sneaky, conniving little fool. The people that God redeems are not necessarily the people that the world would choose. God doesn't necessarily choose the best looking. God doesn't necessarily choose the most talented God doesn't necessarily choose the most articulate, the most popular. No offense to anybody, but like look around in the room at who's here. Right? None of us are like high society folks, I don't think. None of us are known throughout the world for our talents or our charm, right? We're just ordinary people that are here in this room, and this is who God chooses to redeem. And you put all that together, and that's a foolish message. You need to be saved. You can't save yourself. Your Savior's going to come in the most feeble and meek way possible. And then when He does those things, like look around at who He's picked to be on His team. That's the folly of the gospel. But at the same time, what's the power of the gospel? The power is the same thing as the folly. The fact that this story, that this plan worked is power. Think about who the first disciples were. They were just fishermen. They were ordinary guys. They, one guy was a tax collector. I think these were not prominent people, and God says, you, come follow me, and I'm going to redeem you. 
Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he actually was somebody. He had a standing in his day, in the society of his day. And when God redeemed him, his life just got way harder. It got way more difficult when he came to God's side of things. And then he became a nobody from that point. In the world's eyes, we know him as the guy that wrote the majority of the New Testament, and he's certainly not a nobody to us, but, but in the eyes of the world, God redeemed the most unlikely person. Paul was a persecutor of the church, and God says, I'm going to pick you to be on my team. You're going to go from being a persecutor of the church to being one of the greatest evangelists that the church has ever seen. Very unlikely. God chooses the things the Bible tells us that are foolish and the things that are weak, the things that are low and the things that are despised. So the folly of the gospel at the same time is the power of the gospel. But I get a guy like Thomas who's like, I, I, need, I need some more proof about this. I'm skeptical. Skeptical that Jesus, that you actually saw Jesus. And apart from considering the resurrection, the events of Jesus' life are really nothing more than a tragic story. Have you ever thought about that? What if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? What if the resurrection didn't happen? What if it was a sham? Then Jesus lived a tragic life, and his story is tragic. He was a good guy. We know him as more than a good guy, but, but people looked at him as a good, a good person, a kind person, someone who helped people, served others, wrongly convicted, in a sham trial, like he didn't really get due process. And then he died. He died a horrible, horrible death that he didn't deserve to die. And that's a tragic story if that's the end of it. If that's the end of it, Jesus' life is a story of, a, of an innocent man who died an unjust and undeserved death. But if Jesus really did, defeat death? If when Peter and John and Mary came to the tomb, and if it really was empty, and not because anybody took the body away, but if it really was empty because Jesus got up and walked out of that grave, if He really did defeat death, that changes everything. If Jesus defeated death, everything that He said and everything that He did matters. If he defeated death, not only does it matter, but it matters more than anything, the things that he said and the things that he did. Even though death is painful and even though it's devastating, if Jesus rose from the dead, death then, as we've already talked about today, is not final. If Jesus rose from the dead, then death is not final. For many of us, it's our greatest fear that we're going to die when we're going to die, how we're going to die, what's going to happen after we die. But if Jesus is the death defeater, then death is not final. Death doesn't have the final say. And if death doesn't have the final say, then who does? Jesus has the final say. And so this foolish message of the gospel, the folly of the gospel, if all of this is true, means that the gospel is not just a life or a death matter. It's more than a life or a death matter. One theologian said this. He said that the gospel is a matter not of life and death, but it's a matter of life for death, or rather death for life. Jesus does not claim to die, period, 
He claims to have died and risen to life. This means that if we have faith in Jesus as a moral philosopher, a good example, or even a suffering Savior, it's not enough. Biblical faith is faith in the resurrected Christ. Biblical faith is faith in the foolish message of the gospel, the foolish message of the cross. And so here's Thomas in a moment maybe struggling with his faith for a reason that you and I can easily understand because we would struggle as he struggled too if it were us in that moment. So skeptical Thomas, as we move on in John 20 to verse 26, encounters Jesus. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What an incredible moment that we have here. Then Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And so Thomas, in his skepticism, it takes eight days, so you can imagine what those eight days were like of the disciples telling Thomas, like, no, we really saw him. You could see Thomas maybe getting first, like, quit telling me that you saw Jesus. You didn't. And for eight days, yes, we did. No, you didn't. Yes, we did. No, you didn't. You can imagine what that might be like. And after eight days, they were in a room and the door was locked, and all of a sudden, Jesus just appears. Who could do that? Only Jesus could do that, right? He just appears. And what does he do? He, he chides Thomas and says, you should have believed. No, he doesn't do that. He says, Thomas, here's my hand. Check out the hole. Here's my side. Check out the big flesh wound that's right there. Like he very graciously and very patiently with Thomas says, see what you need to see. And then he tells Thomas, don't disbelieve, dude. Believe. Here's, here's the proof. And Thomas confesses his belief in that moment. And again, I don't, I don't think that he doubted in the sense that maybe he was questioning who Jesus was. I don't, I don't know that he was doubting his faith. I think he just was skeptical of his friend seeing something that didn't seem like a very plausible thing to see. And when he got the proof, he confessed, my Lord and my God. He didn't say that, that you are Lord and you are God. He said, my Lord and my God, this deeply personal confession from Thomas. Jesus, you're my Lord. Jesus, you're my God. I believe with everything that I have. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. And what that's not saying is that you just have to utter these words. It's not talking about that. This is talking about like there's some implication to uttering these words. Like when you sincerely confess, like Thomas did, my Lord and my God, there's something that happens. In that moment, you now belong to God upon your confession of who He is. History tells us about Thomas, just if we get maybe a little glimpse of what happened to Thomas from here. History tells us that Thomas was speared to death about 40 years after the resurrection. 
that he was speared to death while he was taking the gospel to what we know today as India. He gave his life in order to spread this foolish message of the cross. Do you think that Thomas believed? Do you think his confession was legit? God was patient with him in his skepticism. And in his confession, he then went on to take this foolish message that maybe he was skeptical about, and he gave his life in service to Christ to spread the foolishness of the cross throughout the world. Picking up in verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John starts out his gospel, the very first chapter, the very first verse, by saying, in the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John chapter 1. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so he starts off, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God. He was God. Everything that was made was made through Jesus. There wasn't anything that was made that he didn't have his hand in creating. And as we come to the end of John's gospel, he says that I've written all of these things so that you would believe him who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God and who created all things. And so we have kind of these bookends. This isn't the very end of John's gospel. There's a little more to go, but we have these bookends. I'm here to tell you, who God is at the beginning of, of His gospel. At the end, I've written these things so that you might know and that you might believe who God is. Just like Thomas, that you would make a confession, my Lord and my God. And you can make that confession now if you've never made that confession before. If you're skeptical, if you have some doubts, just like Jesus was patient with Thomas, Jesus is going to be patient with you in your skepticism. And just like he met Thomas in his skepticism, he'll meet you in your skepticism. But there's going to come a day, Philippians chapter 2 tells us this, verses 1 to 11. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle Paul unpacks for us these few short verses, part of the folly of the message of the gospel. That Jesus, who was God, for a time did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he humbled himself and he came to his own rebellious creation who in turn hung him on a cross and killed him unfairly and unjustly. And that might sound like a defeat. And in some senses it is a defeat. But because it was the will of the Lord, the prophet Isaiah tells us to crush him. This was part of the plan. And the plan ends with Everyone and everything in all of creation bending the knee to Jesus Christ, calling Him Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so as you sit here today, maybe considering your own confession, considering your own skepticism, there's going to come a day where your knee is going to bow and it's not going to be your choice. There's going to come a day for all of us that there's no question who God is. There's going to come a day where there's no question that that Jesus is the one that holds the universe together and He's the one who controls and orders everything. We we might question that today, but there's going to come a day in the future and maybe maybe the not-too-distant future, I don't know, but there's going to come a day where every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly, every tongue will confess because there's no longer a question about it that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're going to know. If you don't know now, you will know. So the truth is that one day, everyone will confess. Everyone will confess. And here's where the resurrection comes in that we would consider today. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The Apostle Paul spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15 making a case for the resurrection. And he essentially says that that if the resurrection is not possible, if it's not possible that Christ is raised from the dead, then those of us who have bought into Christianity, we're fools. We've bought into a lie, and there's no one anywhere to be pitied more than Christians who have bought into something that ends up being false. And I happen to agree with him, but because the inverse of that's true, because we believe that the resurrection is true, we believe that Christ is raised from the dead, there's nothing more important in the entirety of the world and no other greater message than that Christ has raised from the dead and defeated death and conquered sin so that you and I can be reconciled to Him and have right relationship with Him. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, as I already said, His life would just be a tragic story of some bad things that happened to a good person. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, we don't have any hope, you and I. We don't have hope, as we've talked about this morning, for for those who pass on from this world. We don't have any hope for them or for us, if Christ didn't raise from the dead. And if we don't have any hope, how do we sleep at night? We don't have any peace. 
If we don't have any hope, we lay awake at night tossing and turning because this world is all that we have. And watch the news for 10 minutes and you can see that this world is not heading in a good direction. If the resurrection isn't true, we don't have any joy. The Bible tells us to count it all joy as we face trials of various kinds. And the only reason that we can have joy as we face various trials is because Christ defeated death. That He's the Redeemer and that one day He's going to make all the wrong things right. If that's not true, take me now. If the resurrection is not true, then our future is nothing more than speculation. We can hope that things turn out good, can hope that things turn out in our favor, but because Christ raised from the dead, because He defeated death, because He conquered sin and He walked out of the grave, because the gospel is not only a foolish message, but it's a foolish message that happens to have power, then we don't have to speculate about our future. Jonathan Dodson says that biblical faith is thoughtful trust in the good news that Jesus has, has succeeded where Adam and you and I have failed. That He alone has the power to reverse the curse, forgive sin, conquer death, and give us new life. If we put our faith in the wrong thing, even a crucified, non-resurrected Messiah, we're still in our sin. And so the question before us today is that do we believe that the resurrection is true? And if we do, it changes everything. And if we do, like with Thomas, it begs a confession that says, I believe that's true, my Lord and my God. Because Jesus, like Thomas, He's calling us all to belief. Like Jesus said to Thomas, don't disbelieve but believe. He's saying that to you and to me today, don't disbelieve but believe. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And when the Bible talks about life and death, it goes beyond probably what you're thinking when you think about life and death. When we think about life and death, we think about organs ceasing to function, bodies shutting down. When the Bible talks about life and death, it talks about the difference between knowing Christ and not knowing Christ, and it has implications well beyond this world. It has implications into eternity. And if Christ really did walk out of the grave Easter Sunday more than 2,000 years ago, if He did, what's stopping you from believing and confessing my Lord and my God and embracing life that goes beyond the here and the now, life that goes on into eternity. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we celebrate His death on the cross. It's why when we take communion, we remember what otherwise might be a horrible and tragic event because it wasn't horrible and it wasn't tragic. It was beautiful. And we celebrate the resurrection because we believe it's true. So I just want to leave you with just this thought to consider like me, if you can relate to Thomas and being skeptical of some things, that, that now is the time to believe. Jesus is calling you not to disbelieve, but to believe and to confess my Lord and my God. Father, we're thankful today. Thankful that you 
love us, that you care for us, thankful that you put up with us in our rebellion. Thankful that you're patient with us when we doubt. Thankful that you contend with us when we're skeptical, when we don't always believe. Thankful that you are the author of our faith, as the Bible tells us. Father, more than those things, we're thankful that you sent your one and only Son because of the great love with which you loved us that all we are called to do is believe in him and that you will grant us eternal life. And so I would pray today for those of us that are here that that believe and have made the confession, my Lord and my God, that we would be encouraged in our faith today, that we would be reminded not just of the folly of the gospel, but the power of the gospel that raised Christ from the dead. And for those that might be here that are still trying to figure out belief and wading through doubt and wading through skepticism, God, I pray that you would open up eyes, that you would open up hearts, that you would open up minds to see the truth of the gospel with clarity like it's never been seen before. And that we might get to rejoice uh, that faith would be awakened in the lives of people, uh, perhaps even here today. Father, we love you and we're grateful for all that you do for us and we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen.